0: This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, longtime resident of China. And fun fact, there are more planes underwater than submarines in the sky. My co-host is John Passon co-founder of Manner Companion, founder of Allset Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, Sinosplice.com, and when his mom made him buy a cake for his brother's surprise birthday party, that was when he started to suspect he was her favorite twin. What do you like about learning Chinese? In this episode, John and I talk about all the reasons we enjoy learning Chinese, and so should you. Guest interview is with Jason Brooks, a former language teacher and founder of an AI startup. Let's get to it. Hey, guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States.
1: Hi, everybody. I am in Shanghai, China. My name is John Pasden. How's it going? Okay, John,
0: we have got a few reviews, Uh, so let's kick that off. We have our first one from Chapati Listens. Here in the U.S., Uh, I'm assuming she says I've been listening to this podcast for a while now. Really enjoy the two hosts. When I started learning Chinese, I focused a lot on flashcards and memorizing characters. But now I follow their method of comprehensible input and do much more reading at my level. This is not only much more enjoyable, but makes it way easier to pick up and remember the characters too. They are very upbeat and clearly have fun with each other, which I appreciate. Oh, here we go, John. My issue with the show is that all the guests are white men. Drives me crazy. Bring some diversity, please. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, Chapati Listens, uh, for that review. And, uh, John, she's got a point.
1: And her pain is also our pain because we're trying to get more female and non-white male guests, but it's actually not as easy as you might think.
0: That's right. So and I will just say that this is a podcast. You can't always see the guests. So not everyone is necessarily a white male we do have have had a diversity on that end uh, but yes we do have some females and we do have some great guests that are going to be like female guests that are light up for next year some uh, actually some, a couple that are quite impressive uh, but if you have a great story and you're female <laughs> feel free to reach out to us sometimes it seems a bit a little bit harder for us
1: yes we are aware of the imbalance and we would like to address it and we welcome all kinds of interesting and accomplished guests for our show Okay, so now I have a review from Air 101. I just listened to episode 101. I try to leave comments every now and then to show my appreciation for you guys' hard work and buy all the books, too. Thank you. As of March 2023, it will be five years since I started studying Mandarin, and I have been listening to your podcast since the beginning. It has really helped motivate me to keep going and to continue to study roughly an hour of Chinese a day. Thanks so much, and keep it up. Well, thank you. And you keep it up, too. Yeah, that's great. Keep it going, uh...
0: And last one is from Anagman, uh, and they say, uh, keep up the great work, guys. All right, we will. Uh, Well, we appreciate everybody's comments, and um, keep them coming.
1: Okay, everybody, so we've got plenty of positivity for you today. We are talking about why we love Chinese, and maybe you should too. Because um, it's not quite as simple as as just, you know, a couple word answer. I think it's actually an issue worth exploring. And Jared and I have some different experiences and we'd love to share them. That's right. And, you know, it's important to point out things that you like about the language or why you like learning it.
0: Because you got to have your own motivation, right? That's one thing you maybe have
1: taken away from this podcast is that you need to have a reason to learn. Okay, but when it comes to like loving Chinese, it does make me think of a long term love relationship, like a romantic human relationship. And the thing about those is for the long term, they can't stay the same. They need to change. They need to evolve. Like for all you married folks, you can't love your wife forever because she's young and hot because she's not gonna be young and hot forever, right? So you have to find a way to keep making the relationship work as things change, as you change, you know, as it evolves. And I think the same is true for Chinese. I think maybe also you could fall out of love with Chinese, but that hasn't happened to me. And I keep finding new ways to love it. So that's what I'm going to be talking about. And this is a really good point, John,
0: is that you know, the reason you start learning is not always the reason you continue to learn. And I found this with all the guests we've had on the show. You know, two, five, ten years later, the the reasons they continue to learn the language are different than when you first started. And that's normal. It's okay.
1: Okay, so the reasons I got started are kind of, I don't know, I guess you could call it sort of intellectual curiosity, like liking puzzles, liking a little bit of a challenge. For me, it was the characters specifically that attracted me. The sounds of the language did not attract me so much but the characters and I really wanted to understand them and understand how they worked and that feeling of being able to read and understand characters I wanted that so that's probably what hooked me in the very beginning and made me fall in love with the with the language at least the written aspect
0: I got to say this is is something I do enjoy about Chinese I I kind of feel like it's the the form the function and the flow of Chinese characters they're just kind of cool right I mean I will say at the beginning I was like put off by characters I was like oh no uh, I like, they look like spooky animals. Right. But as I kind of got to know them and, and like start to see the, the rhyme and reason to them, well, there's not always a rhyme and reason to every character. But uh, <laughs> there, there, there is uh, some cool elements about the language. And, you know, one thing I love about it, John, is it is really kind of the only surviving logographic language. Uh, you know, it's, we have like had cuneiform and hieroglyphics and there's some Aztec and Mayan languages that, you know, died out over the years, over the centuries, millennium. But, uh,
1: you know, Chinese stood the test of time. Well, not purely logographic if you want to get pedantic. But anyway, I get what you're saying. It's cool. But like for me in the beginning, uh, the characters definitely sucked me in, but eventually they became sort of normal. And that, you know exoticness or whatever started to started to fade and then i think i started turning more towards the sounds of the language because i realized that my tones were terrible and they needed a lot of work and and so i just really focused on that and it was a new challenge and one that i know that i had to tackle in order to communicate so again in the beginning it's like this this series of challenges and i wanted to know what was on the other side of those
0: You know, John, I think something about the challenge of the written language is something that kind of sucks some people into really feeling like that you want to learn to handwrite. And I got to admit, John, you know, when I I started out, I was the same way. And I think you learned to handwrite a lot of characters at the beginning because that's kind of the thing to do when you were learning at that time at those early stages, right? Yeah. So I I think, uh, you know, there's that, that kind of coolness factor of being able to write you know, nowadays, you know, we really kind of recommend, hey, okay, it's fun. If you really want to do it, go ahead and do it. But, you know, don't really focus on handwriting because it takes a lot of practice to become fluent at handwriting, but it's still a cool thing to do.
1: And I got to say, tackling these challenges, um, it does give you a certain kind of confidence that, that is quite maybe addicting and enjoyable anyway, especially in the beginning when you start to make that progress.
0: Yeah, I would definitely say so. And I think, you know, Now, having learned learned Chinese, I I think it's uh, something I could say, I could go learn Swahili or I could learn Spanish for sure. Because, you know, Chinese, it it is a challenging language. It's debated if it's the most challenging language. I think, you know, that really depends on what your mother tongue is. But it is challenging. It's kind of like, hey, you know, uh, what I like, one thing I do like about having learned this language that it's taught me that I could do something that's difficult. I could do something that's hard. And I've studied a little bit like, you know, programming languages, uh, you know, like Python. And it's it all that's like, oh, yeah, it's just like learning another language, so to speak. Uh, now, I haven't really done that. I haven't found the, really that need of motivation yet. Uh, but it makes me realize, yeah, I, I could totally do that.
1: But then once you get to that point where you feel you, you can read, you can communicate, especially communicating, you know, face to face, I think that brings in a whole new like layer of love for the language because all these people that I don't know, maybe you didn't even totally believe you could communicate normally with Chinese people that don't speak English at all, but then once you start to do that and you just start to communicate and understand China for real and talk to people that maybe have never talked to a foreigner before and talk about some interesting topics, I don't know it just, it just opens up a whole new level of enjoyment yeah, I think for me,
0: this really, it's like one of those things that allows you to broaden your view on the world and just connect with a whole segment of the world that you wouldn't have uh,
1: been able to otherwise. Yeah, that's kind of addicting too, right? I remember in the beginning when I finally got to the point where I felt like I could hold a conversation and, you know, I would go out traveling sometimes by myself or um, I would sometimes talk to random people that seem friendly. Um, you know, I could talk to friends of friends and, yeah, it really did expand my horizons, and it it really makes you, for me, because I was so, you know, kind of introverted and bookish, focusing on my tones and my characters, it really made me more extroverted and uh, made me really get out there and start experiencing China more.
0: I love that part, John, is that, it, for me, it's it's that op- opportunity to really really broaden your perspective, right? And I think, you know, at some point, you know, as kids, uh, most of us grow up with a very centric view of the world you know the world revolves around us as we grow older and older, we realize that's not necessarily the case uh but you know learning another language it allows you to really broaden that perspective even even more uh, and so you know I know a lot of listeners have maybe grown up speaking you know more than one language and so but, you know, as you begin to add to that, and especially when you get into the Chinese area, it, it really does. It just opens up a whole lot of things. And just like that, like you said, John, is like, you know, coming across and being able to speak to a Chinese person. It, it allows you to, you know, understand certain things and get that perspective that you wouldn't have had otherwise.
1: Yeah, and the same could be said for reading, right? Once you finally get to the point where you can just see something and, and read it. And I don't mean anything, but, you know, there are some things that you couldn't read before and now you can. And you can actually piece together all this written language around you. Uh, maybe it's newspaper articles, but maybe it's a lot simpler than that. And you can just start to understand your environment with all the writing on it. When I lived in
0: China, I, I described this as the streets coming alive, because you know before I just didn't, didn't even know what this store was. But as I started really being able to understand enough characters, I were like, oh, that that's that's a you know a barber shop, and oh. This guy does shoe repair and then, you know, started understanding all these different things. I'm like, oh, wow, this is this is amazing. You needed to read the barbershop sign. I couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some of them are, like tucked back in there. You can't really tell what's going on in there. Right. <laughs>
1: um, but
0: but, you know, you, you start getting an idea.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I remember when I started being able to read a lot more around me and I and I finally realized that I can read like so much, like maybe 80 percent of just signs and stuff on the street then I would kind of make a challenge out of trying to be able to read every sign and, and, you know, every shop name because I wasn't that far off. And if I just added a couple words here and there uh, on the route that I take every day, then I could pretty much read everything around me. And that, that was a really cool feeling. But John, not everybody is in China, right?
0: Um, so I, I got some China. things that why I still like reading Chinese, even though I'm not in a not living in china anymore so there's there's a couple things there. one is like i love being able to you know read or know what is on a package and so here i got a couple stories about this or once i ordered a phone case uh for my phone and it came in i ordered it on amazon here in the states and it came in and i'm telling you it was like the cheapest chintziest phone case ever it, it barely matched the picture you know, on the on the listing on amazon and i opened up the case and i i could because i knew chinese i could see that this person had ordered it off of taobao had it shipped to them and didn't even change any of the labels or anything or anything it had like the guy's original address on it it was like shipped to guangzhou or something and he shipped it from there to america and i was like and i was so mad at the guy and i was like talking to him in chinese because i'm like this is the you know, I want a refund. You better return this thing. Anyway. So, uh, that, that was a good thing. And my son also wants to buy like a little e-scooter uh, from a local store. And he's like, dad, this is great price. And I started looking at it and I, 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 my wife took some pictures and sent it to me. And I started realizing, I started reading, I'm like, no, I, I don't know. I started, was able to like, look it up in China and find out which one it was. And I'm like, yeah, the reviews, everything I said the best reviews on this thing. I think it's going to have some problems. And so, you know, Hey, Reading Chinese definitely comes in handy here for, you know, some other investigative things like that. And I've even had some clients in years past come to me, you know, asking some questions about a potential supplier or a business partner, you know, from China. And they've sent me some details and is able to look it up. He was even able to uh, look up something for a lawyer friend, some legal action that they had against some, some supplier and they had their Chinese guy in the Netherlands and it was kind of confusing, but they were able to like unravel some details for them. So, you know, it's uh, definitely being able to read has really come in handy, even though I'm back here in the States.
1: Yeah. So for me, being able to read didn't really go in that direction, but, you know, first being able to read little things, then being able to read, you know, like news or being able to read uh, a very short book or a slightly longer book. And then I also used my reading to you know to do my master's in, in applied linguistics here in China. And so for me, that opened another layer of like this love for Chinese, because I was learning all this linguistic stuff about Chinese in Chinese, and being able to discuss it with native speakers and hearing all their opinions about, you know like the feel of a certain word, or you know why this doesn't sound grammatical to them, you know, from their native speaker perspective that was just totally out of my depth not so long ago. But being able to, you know, to be able to handle that kind of conversation, that that was a really interesting uh, way of deepening my love for Chinese right there. So, John, did that end when you finished your master's? Well, it didn't really end because then I started doing jobs that related to, to teaching Chinese. And, you know, I'm never going to be a native speaker, obviously, but uh, first at Chinese Pod, then at All Set learning a Mandarin companion. I'm always working with Chinese teachers and we're talking about the language. And so I just keep hearing these nonstop like insights into the language and how it's used. And I just really enjoy that. So that fuels my love of Chinese as well.
0: You know, I love that, John. Despite the number of years that you've lived in China and the level of proficiency you have in the language and being involved in language education, you're still gaining insights into the language,
1: right? Oh, yeah. That's one thing I learned about Chinese. You got to stay humble. Um, You can love the language, you can get really good at it, but you got to stay humble because, uh, you know, just not a native speaker and even native speakers are not omniscient, right? Always
0: learning. Something else I really love about Chinese, John, is it is our family's secret communication language. That's right. We're out with family, friends. You know, you want to slip a message to my wife about whatever. Hey, it's time. I'm getting really tired or... You know, whatever, you know, we can just run it across in Chinese. You know, I got to tell something to my kids, you know, you know, don't do this or, you know, go get that present for, you know, your grandpa. It's in the car or whatever. You know, I can say it now in Chinese and like nobody knows what's going on. I know that doesn't really work for you, John, there in China, but back here in the States, it's pretty
1: fantastic. And people probably have no idea what language you're speaking because they wouldn't have guessed Chinese, right?
0: Well, when we're around family now, you know, sometimes we do this and, uh, and my, my brother-in-law, he's like, speak English. We're in America. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Anyway, but, uh, I will say it comes in handy as well. Like if you're at the store and you know, you, you kind of got like maybe a sales guy trying to sell you something. And, you know, my wife wants to ask me something like, do you think this is too expensive? Or maybe you should look this up. Go around the corner and, you know, can you go look this up on the Internet and to, and tell me what you think? And so all this is happening in Chinese and you know, the shopkeeper has, like, no clue what's happening. So it's pretty awesome that way.
1: Nice. One might argue that many languages could accomplish that. But in your family, it's Chinese. So cool. Uh, one other thing that I like about Chinese, though, and this is something that started a long time ago and it just keeps going on, is I really enjoy looking at like ads in Chinese or like clever logos or puns or wordplay or character play in Chinese. I just really like seeing how native speakers play with their own language. And, um, you know, that's around me in Shanghai. And uh, yeah, it's just something I really enjoy. Do you have a favorite pun, John? I don't. A lot of them are not that clever, but it's, it's nice to just be able to get them because, you know, for a long time, you just don't get anything um, humor is uh, kind of infamous for lagging a bit behind the rest of your communicative abilities but uh yeah they're they're all over the place though I can't say there're a ton of good ones but there's still some clever stuff well on that
0: note though John I for me something else I love about learning Chinese is that some words are just better in Chinese okay so like mafan bu yao. those are better huh but I got to say, John, like my favorite word, it just sounds right, is la z So it's, uh, you know, it means diarrhea. But it just got the la and the and, the and the, I don't know, it
1: just come it's just coming together. It's just, you know, it's a good, good, good word. Do you, do you know what the most perfect word in the English language is? Uh, selfie? I don't know. What? Close. Cellar door. Why is that? I don't know. Look it up. Okay.
0: It's a little known linguistic fact cellar door like like wine cellar not really
1: a fact but it's a famous opinion all right anyway don't worry about it
0: all right well we'll look it up you look it up all y'all people look it up too
1: okay so are we out of love for chinese or do we have any other things we want to bring up i have a very last one john and this is
0: that due to like the chinese diaspora you will find chinese people all over the world Uh, Now, this is a great tip, I think, for anyone learning Chinese, but it's really like doesn't matter where you go, you're going to find some Chinese people there. Uh, I will say I've traveled uh, many different areas, um, but I think specifically I'm thinking of I was in Puerto Rico last year, and then I was also in Cancun a couple years ago, and you go to a Chinese restaurant, typically you're going to find some Chinese people there, and, and being able to speak the language and connect with them is how Chinese can help you, uh, in a country where Chinese isn't really even spoken. So, uh, it's kind of like your own little
1: exclusive club.
0: Yeah. It's like a special global ex- <laughs> exclusive club. Like, like, you know, the airport, you get access to the VIP lounge, you know, something like that. You you can get now access to uh, these special, you know, uh, waylay stations, you know, uh, You get access to these special relay stations in in any country.
1: Now, I've experienced that, too, like in Japan or like in Turkey or something. The Chinese people there really aren't expecting it a lot of the time. So you can have some uh, fun conversations.
0: Definitely. And it's uh, it's something that helps you out a lot, especially when you're in a place where you don't speak the language. Like you're in Turkey, right? John, are you speaking Turkish
1: these days? No, I'm not. But I do love the country. All right. So anyway, we hope you have reasons to love Chinese. We hope that they evolve and grow as your Chinese gets better. And uh, if there's anything you'd like to share with us about that, we would love to hear it.
0: Definitely. Write us why you enjoy learning Chinese, and we might share your comments on the next podcast. Alright now it's time for a word from our sponsor Today our sponsor is
1: Manor Companion Easy to read Chinese novels Otherwise known as Chinese graded readers And today we're talking
0: about Journey to the Center of the Earth, our Mandarin Companion Level 2 450 Basic Character Graded Reader.
1: So this is a classic story. It is Level 2, so it gets just a little more action-oriented without getting too crazy in the vocabulary. But also, as usual, it's adapted to a Chinese context in our story. This takes place in
0: a number of locations throughout China, but it centralizes around three main characters and focuses on their discovery of an ancient manuscript that leads them on a quest. to descend to
1: the depths of the earth and find its center. Yeah, the title kind of gives that one away. But anyway, it is a good story and it is also good in Chinese at level 2, 450 unique Chinese characters. You can go out and get it today on iBooks, Kindle, Kobo,
0: or wherever you get your books. Now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave?
1: Uh, I guess you could say I have a rant. So uh, if you've been watching the news, uh, China is finally starting to loosen its COVID restrictions, uh, particularly Shanghai, right? Yeah. But just tonight at 8.30 p.m., my kids' school announced that the kids aren't allowed to go to school tomorrow. It's canceled. They have to stay home and do online learning. And all the parents are just like what are we not loosening up restrictions (laughs) so anyway we have faith that uh these covid restrictions are not forever but uh it is a bumpy road folks so that's my rant well hang in there john yes and by the way i know the rest of the world is past covid everyone keeps telling me that. i know we are not all right so jared rant or rave
0: john i've got a rave today I mentioned this on the podcast a couple episodes ago. We rolled out a new website, but there's specifically something on that I've got to make a, a rave about, and it's about our managed companion level test. So we do have a, a listener who had reached out a while ago. His name's Cody Jenkins. Uh, he's an American guy. He's a software developer, and um, and he had some idea. He had developed some little tool, and so we talked about this, and, and we together we developed a a tool that you can take we developed a little test we put it on our website that you can take it and it helps you determine what is the right level for you uh, in the Manor Companion leveling system. And usually for most people within 20 characters, it'll be help identify what your level is. So you can go jump on it. We'll put a link in the show notes. You can find it on our, our homepage as well on our website at mannercompanion.com. But you can be like, hey, it pops up a character and you say, do I know this or not know it? Right. You can also check to see if you were right or not. And you could go back a little bit if you need to. And after so many, it it kicks out, says, oh, it looks like you're level one or breakthrough or level two. Or even if you do really well, it might be like, hey, man, you probably are beyond our books. Does that work on mobile? Yes. Works on mobile, desktop or whatever. And I got to say, I spent a lot of time on this, figuring out the logic and statistical sampling methods and, uh, you know, analyzing this in many different ways, organizing the characters. And so uh, it's, it's pretty simple. It's, it's kind of crazy, the complexity and the detail that goes into something like this. But uh, we came up with something I think is working pretty well. And we've had a lot of positive feedback on
1: it. All right, cool. So if there's any doubt about your level and how our books might line up with it, you can now use this tool and know pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, John, maybe you should take it. Find out what level you were at.
1: Ooh, maybe I'm ready for level three.
2: My name is Jason Brooks. I'm founder and CEO of Harkness AI, which is an early stage AI startup.
0: Jason has done a lot more than found a company. From humble beginnings, growing up in a dangerous part of LA, Jason has gone the extra mile to make the most of the opportunities he's being offered, as well as carve out opportunities of his own. His story is an inspiration to all of us as we work towards our goals in life, regardless of what language we are learning. Stay with us. That sounds fascinating, Jason. So tell me, why did you start learning Chinese?
2: I've always had a fascination for whatever's on the other side of the hill. So like this had to be the the experience of so many human beings that they lived in a valley and were surrounded by mountains and like, gosh darn, what's on the other side of that hill? And that for me I just had mm. an insatiable urge to just discover. And then my freshman year of college, I got totally lucky and totally randomly paired as my freshman advisor was Steve Fisher, who was the world language department chair at Trinity University, also happened to be the Mandarin teacher, and he forced all of his advisees to take Mandarin one hundred and one. So, oh, really? Yeah, Eight o'clock on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. be like, what happened? And that was my first little entree into Mandarin as a freshman in San Antonio, Texas.
0: It sounds like at the beginning, it wasn't necessarily your choice. It was kind of like your advisor says, "Hey, you got to do this." Even learning a language—was that in your mind at any point?
2: Yeah, a little bit of both, right? So I grew up in a neighborhood here in LA that was literally like half black and half first generation Mexican-American. So like other languages and speaking Spanish in particular has always been a part of my life. Like I grew up in a church where there was simultaneous translation where you would have English, pastor, he would stop translate that to Spanish, stop, and then translate that to English or Korean, depending on the service. So since I was a kid, I was surrounded by a ton of different languages, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was sort of normalized for me. And then I got to be honest, like I was 18 and scared and first generation college kid and being like, I'll just go with familiar. So Spanish really was like a comfort blanket. And I was Mm -hmm. in San Antonio. So I kind of knew, okay, I don't know about business and marketing and physics and all these other things. Like I'll just go to what's familiar. And then there's always an intrigue with the Eastern world, right? Like I said, I'm from LA, you know, we have Koreatown, Chinatown, so seen it, but never had a direct connection with it until that opportunity sort of arose in college. And then I was like, all right, I'll do it. Let's try it, right? The worst thing that can happen is that it doesn't go well, and then I'll take another class.
0: It sounds like it went well enough because <laughs> you went ahead and you minored, right? And yeah. You didn't have to stick with it. So why did you continue studying Chinese? And it sounds like you still have that opportunity to learn
2: Spanish as well. So
0: what was your decision process there?
2: My parents are very mentally tough people and always have told their kids like, hey, always take the harder road. Mm-hmm. If it's easier, it's probably not worth it. So that was part of what I brought the space. And then once you start doing it, I got to admit, there's a little bit of ego. Right, And there's a little bit of, wow, there's this whole new world that nobody in my current world knows about. And I have access, so that feels cool. And then I just noticed my brain thinking and approaching other problems way differently. When you're learning characters, when you're learning how to write, when you're learning how to read, you have to slow down in a way. And I think the other thing that was really kept me going is that in Chinese, you work so hard. And every character, every chungyu, every (laughs) suyu that you earn, you keep. And you're like, I do not want to give this up. Because Mm -hmm. if you're learning French, you start with a quarter of the language. If you're learning Italian, you, you start with an eighth just because you speak English. But in Mandarin, you're starting at zero, right? For example, like hotel el hotel and l'hotel right those are like, yeah. like it's hotel in all three languages you yes. know french spanish english but <laughs> yeah. penguin is not even close yeah, to no nope. not even close to no nope, got nothing nothing nothing,
0: <laughs> nothing i recall that once after i was learning chinese i was in china for about a year and i had a trip to barcelona spain and i'm yeah. like i could read agua yeah. restaurante or whatever you know yeah, and i'm yeah. like chinese got nothing yeah that's right how far
2: did you feel like you
0: progressed during your undergraduate studies there
2: so, undergrad was like, a, it was interesting, right? Because it was a great experience, but it was very sterile and sanitized, right? Everybody's speaking slow. You're speaking to other learners of Chinese, even great professors, but he you know, wasn't a native speaker. And I'm contrasting that to my first couple of times in Beijing where you're like, whoa, that is Dongbei Hua. And you're like, <laughs> oh my gosh, Shaizong. <laughs> and you're like, what? What? I don't, that, that was not in the textbook. There was a seed planted. That sort of sprouted uh, a little bit later, and I guess we'll get to that part. I didn't actually live in China until 2007, so four years after I graduated undergrad. Then I went for a six-month sabbatical. And long story short is that I was teaching at the Macaulay School in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The school, for a bunch of different reasons, decided to transition away from the Japanese program because of just low enrollment. And then said, okay, China and Chinese is emerging on the world stage. It makes sense to transition those out. And I was like, I'll do it. I have a minor in Chinese. I'll do it. I applied to a bunch of programs and then took a sabbatical and went and lived in Hangzhou for the first six months and then came back on fire, started teaching Mandarin one and then went back every summer and then ultimately took a year and a half sabbatical and just did a Fulbright and just fully lived there for a year and a half in Beijing and a little bit in Shanghai.
0: Wow. This sounds like you went in for a really intense experience and Yeah going back every summer to like improve your studies. What kind of progress did you make during this time?
2: So I got really lucky in that I was a teacher, right? And I probably was teaching Mandarin earlier than my skills sort of warranted. And that really put a fire behind me because every summer I had to learn a whole curriculum to be able to come back and teach it. It was a little bit of like, Ooh, okay, we're at the edge here, but it was really good because I'd learned it, come back taught it, applied it, and it just soaked deep into my brain. So the, that process happened over two years. There's a moment where you have to decide, you have to really figure out, do I really want to do this? Because this is hard. Spending 12 hours a day, banging characters into your brain that don't want to go in, right? Like Cheng Yu, Su all these like things. Yeah, all these things that we'll all know, like these rites of passage to be able to just be conversant, right? Not even fluent, just make it through a conversation. I'm also curious about this because I do know a lot
0: of Chinese teachers who are not native Chinese. Hmm. So how do you feel that
2: worked for and sometimes even against you in the classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. So positive first, I think what helped is that I had a background in language and linguistics and had some flexibility in just in the way that I approached life to be able to explain to learners how the language works, like semantically, just Mm -hmm. tactically towards the end of my career at Macaulay, we brought on another native Mandarin teacher and she could really push the students at the high level, right? Especially sort of heritage speakers or whatever the case may be. They're spoken at home or they had some experience or they'd grown up somewhere really cool. But I think being on both sides of that really helped me see the beauty in both cultures, right? The beauty in the Chinese diaspora, the beauty in, I'll share this with you. Like my, what the Zhongli means is just a būlu sen, and like Bulu mm-hmm. Sun is completely different than Jason Brooks. That's a different person who lives inside this body. And even down to, it's going to sound wild, but my mannerisms, the way I carry myself, the way I walk is different because there's just a different part of my brain that Chinese inhabits. And, and that was a really cool thing for me to experience, but also to share that with my students. More importantly, that they could see like a black dude from Watts, like the hood like speaks Chinese and is like now this new person. It just opened the possibilities for what they could become. And that was to me like the biggest gift just to witness. That's pretty cool. And that's something I do hear from a lot of people who've
0: learned Chinese to a high level proficiency. Mm -hmm. It's exactly that. It's like you almost have a different persona. It's almost like playing a video game and you get to select a different character. That's what it feels like.
2: And I think to that point, right, there's an opportunity when you're learning any language, but Chinese in particular, because culture and history is such a big part of learning the language, is that you almost get to reinvent yourself. I I didn't get Mm -hmm. much of a choice in how I grew up in this American English-speaking context, right? I just... I got put in a box and more or less stayed there and sound like my parents and this and that. But when you're learning a language, you can figure out, oh, how do I want to sound? Do I want a Northern accent? Do I want a Southern accent? Do I want to sound like I'm from Hong Kong? Like where do I want to sound like? So like, it was really cool to be like, oh, okay, I want my accent to sound somewhere in between Beijing Hua and oh, somewhere in the North. Cause I just like that. And it was like a really cool moment in my learning journey to be like, this is cool now for picking accents that I want to show up in. That feels like we're, polishing the stone rather than just hewing it from a rock you know that's cool
0: have you ever had a native speaker like point that out or recognize you maybe you speak a little bit
2: more like this from this area i lived at a university up in Changchun uh, in the north and i would like order food all the time and when i would go down to get food people were like no it there's no way there's no way that you were the person i just talked to like they're they're, there no what so that's always like the biggest badge the biggest compliment that you can ever get it was like those little rewards that make literally years and hours of effort and toil and practice worth it to say okay for a half second i might have passed as something or at least confused you (laughs) in terms of where i come from i'm
0: curious to know about your experience okay you're Mm. a black man speaking chinese in china and from my experience and friends uh, in China is that sometimes your experience is going to be a little bit different than mine being a white male in China. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of your experiences and maybe some of the differences you found and maybe some of the unique encounters that you had
2: because of that. So sadly, all the isms racism, sexism, classism permeate the human race. It's something that seems to be endemic in our species. And I look very different than most of the people in China. And I felt like a combination of lack of information a little bit of the isms and just sheer curiosity, where I'd be mm-hmm. on a train routinely and people would, I mean, staring, I just didn't, it didn't bother me after a while. You, you, I get, like, used yeah, yeah, you get used to that. They want to, to touch that. your hair, right? Yeah. Exactly. They want to touch my hair. <laughs> this conversation is burned in my head so often. And it's like, what country are you from? I'd be like, America. No, no, no. Like, what country are you from? Like, <laughs> America. <laughs> no, no. Like, what, what, what African country are you from? And I was like, I'm not from Africa, but no, 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 really, really. Where are you, where are you from? And I was like, okay, so here you go. Let's talk about slavery. Let's talk about the <laughs> sister, da, 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 da. Uh, And they're like, Oh my gosh. So, so one, it was hard emotionally, right? To constantly have to prove yourself and constantly have to explain yourself. But then that breeds some empathy for other folks for whom that is their daily experience. Right. And that's one of the beautiful things about learning a language is that not only are you getting these skills, but also your heart and your empathy and the way that you approach the world is expanding. Because I'm having experiences that my LGBTQ brothers and sisters are having, right? that my recent immigrant brothers and sisters are having, that any marginalized group that constantly has to fight for their place at the table, that constantly has to defend their humanity, that constantly has to say, I am here and I'm not going to really go away, that's part of their daily experience. And they don't really get a choice on that. So it was certainly hard, certainly painful, certainly complicated, but taught me a ton of lessons, right? Another example I'm thinking now is like further out of the city I got, you'd be on a train mm-hmm. and exponentially the experience has changed, right? Where you're yeah. like like you could hear people say like, Oh, that guy's kind of dark. And you're like, Man, how did he get so dark? He must have been working outside all day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you're like, Yep, like this is a combination of like ignorance and like a little bit lack of like education. And then mm-hmm. like, yep, from your paradigm, people yeah. who yeah. have to work in the fields all day are peasants at the lowest rung of historically Chinese society and culture and access to opportunities. So I have very strong feelings about what racism and discrimination Mm -hmm. and all the isms look like in an English speaking American Western context. And I had to have the discipline not to import all of those assumptions into the Chinese context. right? And I had to both assert like, hey, you can't, like I had a guy throw a banana at me at a beer garden in Beijing. And I was like, yeah, that's out of bounds. You can't do that. Yeah. I'm legit going to get upset about that. Like, yeah. that. no, we're, we're not doing that. Like we all know enough. That's not, you didn't grow up with black people. Uh, <laughs> but also there is some genuine curiosity. Like if you've only lived in a small town with a million people, but all those million people look exactly like you and mm-hmm. you've only seen the NBA, that's the only version of a black person you've seen. Like, I'd be kind of curious too. So like there was this constant is this a malevolent interaction or is this a genuine human curiosity Mm -hmm. interaction? And that was the hard part to have to navigate both sides of that coin.
0: I think you're right because there's a large part of just curiosity and innocence. I've been in some of these small towns you're speaking of, and sometimes I'm the first white dude they've ever seen. And even the fact now that you can speak Chinese, they're like, wow mind blown for them. But imagine the experience they just had interacting with mm. me. And they're going to keep that. And they're going to remember that 10 years out They like, oh, yeah, one time I met this guy.
2: Know that I have to be on quite a few families sort of photo albums because oh, I've yes. taken so yes. many pictures <laughs> with so many babies. You're we hanging on like, many yeah, walls exactly, and homes exactly. or, and, and picture exactly. frames around China. Yes, exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> you spent a lot of time going back and forth between China, but you said you went back for like a year and a half, Fulbright Scholarship sounds like you probably left your job at that point and said, boom, I'm going to do this, really learn Chinese. Why did you decide to go ahead and make that type of leap? What did you hope to gain out
2: of that? Yeah, so in 2008, when former President Obama came to the presidency, as a national sort of priority, the U.S. government decided like, hey, we need a lot of U.S. citizens to be able to speak Mandarin. So I was fortunate to be a part of a group that applied and got full funding to go there and really dive in. I lived in a really, really, really Chinese neighborhood that was off the beaten path and just had like my local grocery store, my local places to go. That for me was probably one of the most transformative episodes in my life because Mm to almost forget and almost pause my American identity to almost pause where I'd come from to dress appropriately as like a 29-year-old Chinese guy who wasn't a student anymore, who's a young professional. There's a certain look, right? you like, Mm -hmm. I stopped wearing American clothes. I start shopping at Chinese places. We're like- Wearing a Mao suit now, right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right? There's some of that full immersing and surrendering to that opportunity. And for me, that was- hugely transformative and even some of those lessons all those lessons stay with me well what are some of those key lessons that you feel like you learned during that time and maybe some of those experiences that you might be able to share with us I think in terms of lessons and experiences I got used to and developed a deep reservoir of discomfort one of the first reactions I often hear when folks go to China is that there's a lot of reaction to the toilets, a lot of reaction to food. There's a lot of reactions to the way that things are done. Oh my God, it's different. And it's not unnatural, but most folks want the world to bend to their will. Mm -hmm. And when you are living literally in somebody else's culture, nobody cares. This is the way it is. This is the way it is. Exactly. You've got to adapt. So that was a really enduring lesson where it's like, I just have a lot more flexibility in terms of things that ruffle my feathers and things that don't. And I think some of the things that are still applicable today is that you go through an experience like that, which is totally transformative, shows you your physical body, your brain. Oh, you can do a lot of hard things, like doing all these different things becomes less daunting because I've already done a really hard thing, right? I've already transformed myself before. So to transform myself once again, becomes more accessible because like, oh, I know the process. I have confidence in the result. I've done the result at a highest level. So like, why wouldn't I be able to do that again? I have a painting here in my office that for me is the most important trophy of my life because when you travel a lot, you go and you see a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff is hawked at you and you're like, oh, I don't care about that. But then it was the first time I was like, oh my gosh, I want that. Mm -hmm. And then I, I was in a trap and I was like, oh man, I want it. And the shopkeeper knows that I want it. And he's like, give me 300 US for it. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And then in Chinese, I bartered him down to 100 US and he agreed. And I was like, oh my God, like my Chinese is good enough to actually be able to get that. And then when I'm walking home, it's a picture of you know the 12 iconic characters from Beijing opera. And then as I'm walking home with this thing under my arm, as I'm entering and rounding the hutong, the old guy who I just pass every morning just say hi, just all this stuff, he asks me about it. And we have this long very human to human connection where he's just like walking me through each one of the characters and how he as a boy went and watched the Beijing opera and what that means to him and how honored he was that I found interest in it. And it was just these beautiful connections of just, man, at the end of the day, humans are humans. When you go sit down at your favorite restaurant and you're like, look, I'm like tired, exhausted, everybody else in here. I've had a rough day, like everybody else in here. I'm no more special or better than anybody else in here. But like, You know, Lama Ma just puts a little bit more of love into your like, it's just amazing, right? I've just learned when you spend time with humans, right? There's just something about the human spirit that will forge a connection. It couldn't be a greater distance than like a black kid from Watts and then like an old woman in the Beijing Hutongs, right? But it's something beautifully connective about it. I assume you've got a bunch of Obama with your thumbs yeah. up, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, A lot, of, uh, Obama, a lot of uh, LeBron. And I was like, yeah. more than you know, I wish I was LeBron. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: So, Jason, I know that you have a AI startup right now. and I'm curious to know, like, how is your language skills? I know Chinese and also Spanish. How has that played into what you're doing right now?
2: Yeah. So fundamentally, what we're trying to do is use AI to help people make good decisions and high stakes conversations, right? Part of my journey is that after I spent time in China, I came back and went to graduate school at Harvard and there I studied like neurolinguistics. So really went even deeper down the rabbit hole of like, how do humans use language to communicate with each other? And obviously having a background in Spanish and then combining that with Mandarin opened up not only like, professional opportunities, but just my mind in terms of like, what is possible in terms of using computers, using artificial intelligence, using natural language processing to really mitigate and sort of streamline a lot of the miscommunication that happens between people, right? And like I say this with so much reverence, but people are literally dropping bombs on each other, stabbing, shooting, killing each other because of miscommunications, because Mm -hmm. of faulty assumptions on both sides and it's like to the extent that i can use this exceptional privilege of opportunity to go live in these different countries have these amazing transformative experiences bring that back and put that into an application that we can use in this hyper-connected world that's something that gets me excited and i feel very strongly that my time in china my time in mexico the way i grew up is not my own right and that's a privileged Experience And it's my responsibility to use the rest of my life to pass that along, whether it's directly to students, but also now to users of our application to make sure that their experience in our application is getting some of those deeply connective human experiences that I got when I was in China. So to be able to use AI to sort of facilitate some of that is is really exciting. So for those of us who are not so familiar with that, how does what you're doing help achieve that goal? So the application is called Harkness AI. And what it does, it shows how individual interactions affect virtual meeting dynamics. So it uses Mm -hmm. AI to code each person's voice. And then you can see like, oh my God, like Jason only talks to Jared and Jared never talks to Samantha. And Samantha only talked to Sarah one time and Sarah only talked to Jessica one time. And then it gives you coaching. Say like, hey, here's a question you might want to ask this person. Here's a question you might want to ask that person. So it literally helps lift the interactions between the group. We have a lot of, oh man, I want to talk to that person. I want to include that person, but I just don't know how, how do I start that interaction? AI can really help you get that ball rolling. And then once the ball's rolling, like your humanity kicks in and you're like, okay, cool. This is just another person we can talk, but it really breaks that seal around that initial interaction. That's fascinating. And how did all this lead down
0: this path to even come up with the idea to do this?
2: going back to my time at Harvard in 2012 to 2013. Yep. Uh, I was first exposed to like data science and machine learning. And at that time I was still very much steeped in like education, language education, Mandarin education. I was like very, I was like on the path to be head of school. Fast forward to 2019. We're all going to have these stories, but fall of 2018, I went to my board and said, Hey, I'm going to step down. I think I want to pursue something else. COVID hit 2020 exploded the world shook up the snow globe of my life <laughs> and then teaching to my students and faculty with mute mics and blank video feeds trying to figure out like how the heck do I connect with these people so then by hand I started tracking student interaction and then I was like oh my gosh this awareness once students know who's speaking to who who's left out of a conversation who's not then you get some awareness and then you have to do something with that awareness and I'll never forget there's a day where a young woman was brave enough to say, Hey, Mr. Brooks, like all the baseball boys only talk to each other. And like, if you don't mm-hmm. do something about it, I will. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh my gosh. So that really strong emotional reaction to the awareness of who's being included in a conversation, who's being left out of a conversation, who's monopolizing a conversation, who needs to step up, who needs to step back. All these pieces that we feel so deeply after every meeting, right? Like, you've been in a meeting. Where somebody, you're like, oh, that kind of felt, ah, there's something that's like, ah. Or you're like, did I show up the way I wanted to? Or like, I just did this great presentation that I spent two weeks doing and I just did it and there's zero feedback. And you're like, Mm -hmm. oh man, I just literally talked into the ether. I talked at my computer and we all closed the Zoom meeting and you're like, how'd that go? Oh, it went well, right? We don't have to do that. And so we're using AI to help bolster some of the in-person connection that we lost. Like the classic example connecting it to Chinese is like, spades versus spades, right? It's like they teach you in in Mandarin 101. That simple shift in tone can mean two completely different things. And so often people are unaware of how they speak because they come from a certain family of origin, right? So I'll give you a very simple example. If I say, hey, Jared, would you be willing to give me that report by Friday? Uh, Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Right. You really don't have an opportunity. You can't say no. Because if you say no, you're saying, oh, yeah, you're not willing to help me. Jared's not willing to help me. It's like, whoa, hang on, hang on. Actually, Jason put an undue burden on Jared. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I forced you to do this thing. But people just say things like that because that's how their mom said it. That's how their dad said it. That's how their teacher said it. So they're just passing on what they received. But now we can use AI to say, whoa, hey, when you say X, this person hears H. When you say A, this person heard Z." So let's slow this down and calibrate so that I can ask you a request in a way that you're most likely to receive in the way that you want to see. And we use AI to almost work as like a sociolinguistic translator between two parties, which then makes, you know, our conversation even better, which makes our team even better, which makes companies even better, which makes the ROI. It just eliminates a lot of the friction and miscommunication that we see in every human interaction sounds like there could even be applications for that in language learning. You know, I imagine yeah. you got a tutor speaking
0: with your tutor or in a classroom and identifying really, you know, who's really speaking and maybe the teacher is Speaking 95% of the time, that, those types of things, right?
2: That's right. Especially as an early teacher, I was so proud of the fact that I could speak in Mandarin for 45 minutes, five times a day. Like, look at me, do the trick. And then, again, my ego got in the way. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is not about me. I can speak Chinese. Like, how do I give the opportunity and the space in my class for my students to speak Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. And if I had Harkness at that point, then I would have been like, oh, my God, like, you literally can't dominate 95% of the class because that's why your kids aren't learning. That's why they mm. hate your class. That's why they nobody <laughs> signs up, right? Because you're just talking at them in a language they don't understand. So maybe you step back and give them the opportunities. I don't know how much you want to get into the political stuff, but I feel like America and China are often pit against each other, and it doesn't have to be that way. Both cultures and countries are very proud, and they have long-storied histories. It's too often framed as a zero-sum game, like we win or they win yeah. or they win. Or we win. And it yeah. doesn't have to be that way. And there's so many of us who have lived and spent a ton of time in both countries and have family and friends on both sides that I just, humans are incredibly adaptable. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that happens that we can adapt to bad narratives and we can adapt to bad situations. And I just don't want us to adapt to this idea that China's the enemy or America's the enemy or they win or we lose. That's scarcity mindset and that just doesn't work and won't lead to the best outcomes. But, you know, China has literally thousands of years of history and wisdom and insight to offer the human race, right? America has 300 years of, you know, history and insights and all this stuff to offer, right? And if we can bring the best offerings, then everybody wins. It doesn't have to be they win, we lose, we win, they lose, right? So. Totally agree. And in fact, I had a recent experience, I mentioned this on my last podcast,
0: was I had the opportunity to play pickleball with the China ambassador. He came on a delegation to Utah and during that time, I had an opportunity to uh, talk with one of the guys that was with the China consulate there. And during his trip, he was expressed something about his understanding of a situation there. And I'm like, actually, that's not accurate. Mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to just correct, not to say correct him, but actually Mm -hmm. share with him how it really was. And he had no idea. And it made me think, well, if he misunderstands this aspect of American culture Mm -hmm. or this aspect of this or about our country, what else does he misunderstand? And what are we misunderstanding about China and the Chinese people? And how do we bridge that gap? Through
2: communication, just interaction. That's how it happens. That's right, that's right. I think Abraham Lincoln said it, like if you know a man's story, you can't be your enemy. That's Mm -hmm. like a quote that stuck with me from junior year of high school, right? Where you feel like sit down and talk with somebody long enough. It doesn't, I don't care who that person is, right? You pick the worst person in your mind. You sit and talk to that person long enough, you're gonna figure out and learn about what wounded them what hurt them, how they got to the, where they are, why they make the decisions they make. And frankly, in a super fast, high-paced, hyper-connected world where we scroll and swipe and X and click out of things, we strip each other of the dignity of getting to know each other's stories. And when you slow down and hear another person's story, there's going to be many points in their story that you connect deeply with. And yeah. that's what I learned in China, right? You're like, you, we could not on paper be more different. But you sit down at the end of the day with a pizzo and just watch the sunset. And you're like, man, a beer and a sunset. I don't care where on the planet you are. That's a pretty great experience if you're sharing that with somebody else. And I think to the extent we can do a little bit more of that every single day, that gives me hope in what the human race can accomplish. Jason, if you could go back, looking at your whole
0: experience here in, in learning Chinese, if you could go back and do anything differently, what, what would you do
2: differently? That's a great question. I'm very happy and satisfied with my time learning Chinese and doing all those things. But if I could do something different, I think I would travel a little bit more because my experience in China is so framed by, the big cities, right? Beijing, Shanghai, mm-hmm. uh, Hangzhou, like all those things. But what does it look like to really get into the middle of the country, the south of the country to really, I mean, what I'm asking for is more time. Please give me more time <laughs> and let me take a sabbatical. Let me just retire early so I can just travel and spend the world, right? So like everybody wants to do that. What advice would you give to someone
0: who's learning Chinese right now? Maybe they're just starting out or they're this maybe somewhere along their
2: journey. Don't give up. Don't give up. Do not give up. Don't do it. There'll be many, many times the dark night of the soul where you're tempted like, this is too hard. It's not for me. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the experience. That is not true. Those are lies that swirl around all of our heads, no matter what you're doing, whether it's learning Chinese or math or starting a business or staying in a marriage or whatever the hard thing is, you're going to be bombarded with lies that you can't do it. But the folks that can hang on, dawn will always rise. And one of the things that I learned from my dad in particular is that you don't make life-changing decisions in a down state. Don't quit when you're feeling bad. Like the day you quit, like you can quit when you're loving it. Like when you, you can walk away from whatever you're doing right after you won, but not after a loss, right? Yeah, and there's because there's so much fruit on the other side, both personally, the skills you'll be able to exact, the way that you move in the world. There's just so much upside that you just can't, don't ever quit. Just please don't quit.
0: <laughs> wow, that's great. I really appreciate that. Well, Jason, if people want to find out more about you and even about what you're doing, where can they go?
2: Yeah. So happy to connect on LinkedIn, Jason Brooks on LinkedIn. And then if you're interested in the company's called Harkness.ai, really active on LinkedIn and uh, love to connect with new folks and make new friends from all over the world. So great. We'll put a link in the show notes. So if anyone wants to be able to connect with you or find out a little bit
0: more about your company, what you guys are doing, Jason, really appreciate you taking the time here to be with us and to share your story, your experience and your life with us.
2: My quest, Thanks for having me.
0: You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, toddler, athlete, celebrity, expert, mortician, animator, baker, and that one gal named Shanna. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com or tag us on social media, hashtag mannercompanion. Apologies to John Cena. We just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo, and interview editor is Dominic Edgeley. I'd like to thank our special guest, Jason Brooks, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next
1: time.